Welcome back. Uh, I'm Bill Niskanen. Uh, since September, I've had the wholly uninformed title of Chairman Emeritus of Cato. But I want to assure you, for better or for worse, that nothing much has changed. I still work here and uh, do, the, do the kind of work I've done over the past 25 years. Uh, and uh, the difference is that I no longer chair or mediate disputes in our board, uh, which is just fine, too. We are privileged, uh, after our lavish lunch, to have uh, the president of the Richmond Fed for dessert. Uh, Jeff has been uh, an economist uh, at uh, the Richmond Fed uh, since 1989, working primarily in the research department. The Richmond Fed has an unusually good research department, as, as I have learned over the time, and we, uh, that's the, that has been the channel in which he has come up in the Fed, and so we look forward to his remarks this afternoon. Jeff? Thank you. Thank you very much. So the theme of this conference, uh, the lessons learned from the subprime crisis, um, appears to be a timely one. Um, but there have been several times in the last um, 12 months or so when I and some of my colleagues at the Federal Reserve System thought it was a good time to initiate some projects to identify lessons learned, only to find that the crisis actually wasn't over yet. Uh, so I hope this conference really does turn out to be timely in the sense that uh, it signals that we're truly past the peak of the current turmoil. This episode undoubtedly will inspire a great deal of research in the years ahead, and it may take some time before anything like a consensus emerges uh, in the economics profession about the causes and consequences. After all, it took several decades to document uh, the causes of the Great Depression, and recent research continues to provide uh, new uh, insights and perspectives on that episode. Nonetheless, I believe the central questions uh, that are likely to occupy researchers um, are plainly in view, and I think some tentative lessons um, have emerged already. In any event, legislators are unlikely to await uh, the fruits of future scholarship, uh, so current efforts to understand what went on is uh, well worthwhile. I'll divide my discussion into two parts, reflecting essentially two distinct time periods, uh, the boom in housing and housing finance and the subsequent turmoil in financial markets. And then I'll conclude with some thoughts about what might lie ahead. As always, the views I express are my own assessments and not necessarily shared by others in the Federal Reserve System. The expansion of mortgage lending that uh, preceded the recent turmoil in financial markets I think is best viewed as a component of the long boom in housing activity that began in the mid-1990s and peaked in late 2005 and early 2006. Hard work, I think, is going to be required to estimate quantitatively uh, the contribution of various causal factors to the rise in subprime mortgage lending and the increase in subprime uh, losses, uh, not to speak of the increase in housing starts and uh, the increase in the home ownership rate over that period. In the meantime, the list of plausible suspects is clear. First, real per capita income grew rapidly in the decade after 1995, more rapidly than in the decade before. Second, real interest rates were relatively low over this period, um, especially after the recession earlier in this decade. Uh, there's been a fair amount of discussion at that at this conference so far. Low real interest rates in part reflected large capital inflows, but the Federal Open Market Committee kept the federal funds 
target rate uh, low in 2003 and raised rates only gradually in 2004. Some uh, some economists have argued that tighter monetary policy during that period would have led to better outcomes. Um, And I think there's some plausibility to the view that it would have led to better outcomes in the sense that it would have prevented core inflation from rising. But I think further research is going to be required to really substantiate that hypothesis. The third contributing factor I'd identify is the technologically driven wave of innovation in retail credit delivery that allowed lenders to make finer distinctions uh, between borrowers. This lowered borrowing costs for many households and um, increased the availability of credit to borrowers formerly viewed as unworthy of credit. As in any industry undergoing a, a, a profound wave of innovation, and credit cards in the 1990s are a good analogy, a good example, natural evolution can involve overshooting and retrenchment. Fourth, the regulatory and supervisory regime surrounding U.S. housing finance probably contributed to the boom in housing and housing finance. Here, several factors deserve mention, I believe. Supervisory agencies like borrowers, lenders, and investors assigned a low probability to the possibility of an adverse housing demand shift of the magnitude and geographic extent that we've seen. Private sector incentives to foresee and protect against such shocks were to some extent dampened by the presence of federal fin- the federal financial safety net, which has been much discussed today, including the inferred prospect of support for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The safety net probably also played a role in banks' involvement in the securitization pro- prospect process. Excuse me. Banks' use of off-balance sheet arrangements, in particular, and the provision of backup lines of credit uh, to others, created state-contingent exposures for the banking system that, in some sense, by design, were most likely to be realized in generally bad states of the world when the safety net protection of the formal banking sector would be most valuable. Official policies aimed at increasing home ownership also provided at least some positive inducement to risk-taking in housing finance. In addition, the unscrupulous and fraudulent practices of some mortgage brokers outside of the banking sector may have contributed to the problem. Although the housing boom will, as I said, inspire a great deal of research in the years ahead, um, and uh, that research will focus, um, I take it, on quantifying the, the extent to which these various factors played a role. Uh, some lessons have emerged already, I believe, and have motivated corrective action both by market participants and by regulators. The appetite of banks and investors for non-traditional subprime mortgages and for the services of independent mortgage brokers has been greatly reduced. Banks and mortgage originators have tightened home mortgage underwriting standards significantly, uh, reflecting both revised assessment of the profitability of more innovating lending approaches and a generally weakening economic outlook. Financial market investors that held mortgage-backed securities have been penalized heavily and have reassessed a range of complex securitization products. The Federal Reserve has tightened standards over unfair and deceptive mortgage lending practices, and supervisory staff have intensified their scrutiny of risk management practices related to structured finance and off-balance sheet activities, and have worked to strengthen institutions' capital and liquidity planning. And U.S. banking agencies have worked together with nonprofits and mortgage servicers to try and prevent unnecessary foreclosures. Apart from these more focused responses, 
broader questions have been raised and have been discussed at um, earlier sessions today about the extent to which policy should attempt to dampen broad swings in credit or asset prices. When a boom in an industry or a sector occurs, there's typically uncertainty about how large or how long that expansion will be. Market participants act on the information and signals provided to them, and this process generally leads to reasonably efficient allocations of goods and services and capital. But people can make mistakes in judging market trends, and sometimes similar mistakes are made by many people at the same time. And this can lead to decisions that many later regret, and arguably is what happened during the housing boom. One might argue that it should have been obvious that prices had become unsustainably high, but borrowers and lenders, and regulators for that matter, could not have been perfectly certain, as someone else made the point earlier today, when the market peak was about to be reached. I'm very wary, therefore, of attempting to use regulation to dampen swings in credit or asset prices. Such swings are often associated with surges in, in innovation, so countervailing intervention would inevitably risk suppressing the technological progress that has been so valuable over the years in improving consumer well-being. In the middle of 2007, the potential scale of the home mortgage losses became more widely appreciated. And financial markets have been displaying the effects of that appreciation ever since. Financial market participants have faced three broad categories of uncertainty since then. The first concerns the aggregate amount of losses on mortgage lending. The housing market is yet to bottom, and cumulative loss rates are still rising on mortgages made in 2006 and early 2007. So it may be some time before total mortgage lending losses are known uh, with a reasonable amount of precision. Second, financial market participants face uncertainty about where these losses will turn up. Mortgage risks were split up and spread widely, both within the United States and Europe and elsewhere around the world, through securitization and the use of the insurance capabilities provided by credit derivatives contracts. Financial market participants thus have been understandably apprehensive about whether any particular counterparty's mortgage-related losses will erode their capital buffer enough to threaten their viability. Third, market participants have at times faced uncertainty about prospective public sector intervention. The disparate responses to potential failures at several high-profile organizations this year probably made it more difficult for market participants to forecast whether and in what form official support would be forthcoming for a given counterparty. Shifts in expectations regarding official intervention may have added volatility to financial markets that were already roiled by an increasingly uncertain growth outlook. In the absence of clearly understood policy rules and principles governing such actions, markets were left to draw inferences from each successive initiative. Until boundaries around such government actions are delineated, markets will be forced to cope with these additional uncertainties. Discussion of the role of a central bank as a lender of last resort often appealed to Walter Badgett's classic prescription to lend freely at a high rate on good collateral. But Badgett's teachings are not directly relevant to modern central bank lending. Lending by modern interest rate targeting central banks is by, necess by, is by necessity sterilized. Uh, that is to say, offsetting asset sales neutralize its effect on the monetary base. So by itself, a central bank loan increases the liabilities and assets of the central bank. The additional reserves would tend to drive the interest rate below the target. So 
central banks generally sterilize their lending operations via offsetting asset sales. In Badgett's time, however, unsterilized lending was the only way for the central bank to prevent a spike in interest rates by elastically increasing the supply of central bank money when the demand for it rose in the crisis. In other words, Badgett's dictum is about what I'd call monetary policy, that is, the size of the central bank's balance sheet, not credit policy, which, when it's sterilized, simply alters the composition of a central bank's asset holdings. Interest rate spikes were a common feature of the many U.S. financial panics in the late 19th century and up to and through the Panic of 1907. The Federal Reserve was founded in 1913 in order to respond to panic-induced increases in the demand for money by expanding the supply of money through unsterilized discount window lending, not the sterilized lending that's common today. Today, central banks respond to increases in money demand through open market purchases in order to prevent interest rates from rising. The initial phase of the Great Depression has been mentioned a couple of times already today. Uh, from 1930 through 1933, that's the episode I'm thinking about, saw another financial crisis in which large numbers of banks failed. One popular reading of the history of that time is that aggressive lending by the Fed to prevent those failures could have forestalled or reduced the severity of the downturn in economic activity. The implied lesson is that central banks should, be, should lend aggressively in a crisis. The Great Depression continues to inspire uh, a lot of debate, as I mentioned earlier. But I think it's important to note that the Federal Reserve policy then also brought about a sharp, sustained contraction in the price level and quite elevated real interest rates. One could argue, therefore, that the correct lesson to draw from the 1930-33 episode is that the Fed failed to follow Badgett's prescription for unsterilized lending. That is, the Fed did not prevent deflation by lowering interest rates and maintaining an adequate supply of money. In other words, the onset of the Great Depression was a failure of Federal Reserve monetary policy, that is, interest rate policy, not a failure of Federal Reserve credit policy. And this, of course, is the argument of Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in their monetary history of the United States. The striking feature of central bank lending during the recent turmoil is the extent to which it's been extended well beyond the boundaries that were previously understood to constrain such lending, both in the range of institutions and the contractual terms on which such credit has been provided. Intervention has been driven by a desire to prevent damaging disruptions to financial markets and thus reduce the overall cost of the turmoil. While this objective is clearly understandable, central bank lending can create the expectation that similar support will be forthcoming when market disruptions occur in the future. Such expectations can themselves be very costly because they can distort the incentives faced by and as a result the choices made by private sector participants. For example, in the past year, expectation of official support may have induced some firms to take the risk of turning down capital infusions or merger offers in the hope of finding better terms in the future. Prospective equity investors may have demanded stiffer terms to compensate for the possibility of dilutive government intervention. Clearly, these contemporary examples of the moral hazard effects of government intervention are detrimental to public policy objectives. So the critical policy question of our time is where to establish the boundaries around the public sector safety net provided to financial market participants now that the old boundaries are gone. Such support inevitably distorts the choices of beneficiaries, 
and costly regulatory and supervisory efforts are required to contain those distortions. A key design consideration, therefore, concerns the offsetting benefits of official intervention in credit markets. Such intervention is typically designed to or justified by a desire to prevent or lessen a severe disruption of, of the financial market that might result from the unassisted failure of large financial institutions. Such disruptions are often described in vivid metaphors using terms like frozen, clogged up, uh, or dried up. But these are just ways of saying that quantities are lower. And by themselves, these adjectives are devoid of analytical content. To evaluate the benefits of intervention, we ultimately need to move beyond metaphors and look for clear and coherent descriptions, that is to say theories, of market function and dysfunction. Future research on the current turmoil and future assessments of current policy will turn on which of these theories accords best with the observational evidence. The standard theory of financial markets is based on the notion that markets are reasonably effective mechanisms for aggregating dispersed information about asset fundamentals so that changes in observed prices correspond to changes in market participants' beliefs about future payment streams. Under this view, of course, central bank or government intervention that raises the price of an asset represents a subsidy to those holding that asset and drives the price away from the asset's true economic value. Limitations of the standard approach to asset pricing have led to the development of theories built on frictions that cause market prices to deviate from the standard results. Some of these theories have the implication that market performance might be improved by central bank lending or other inter official intervention. One commonly cited market malfunction is based on coordination failures that take the form of bank runs, especially runs that have the self-fulfilling property that market participants pull their funds out simply because they think others are doing so. The potential for run-like behavior is thought to extend to short-term debt markets as well. The existence of a lender of last resort or other elements of the financial safety net, it is said, can prevent such market breakdowns. But I think future researchers are likely to be critical of bank run theories as a motivation for sterilized central bank lending in this particular episode. Runs can also occur as a rational and sometimes even necessary response to a fundamental de deterioration in an institution or the assets it holds. My sense of the accumulated evidence is that it's hard to find examples of purely self-fulfilling runs, that is, runs not plausibly warranted by changing fundamentals. Not all rapid portfolio shifts represent runs that necessitate official intervention. Moreover, financial entities often can protect themselves from runs by structuring their borrow arrangements appropriately. Another type of imperfection is the notion that asset prices can deviate from their fundamental values when some participants are forced to sell their holdings rapidly, to meet a margin call, for example, and are forced to take whatever price is offered, even a price that's commonly known to be much less than the asset's true economic value. Logic of such fire sale prices relies on market segmentation, that is, some impediment that prevents the sale to another investor with both the resources to make the, the purchase and knowledge of the asset's fundamental value. Throughout this turmoil, however, it's been widely known that large amounts of money are, were, quote, sitting on the sidelines, as it were. In this age of integrated global financial markets, I find it hard to envision something other than investors' doubts about the value of those assets that has been artificially impeding investors' entry into the market for depressed assets. 
A broader motivation for public sector support at times like these is the notion that credit market disruptions can reduce the banking sector's capital and, that can, and thereby can impede banks' ability and willingness to extend credit to households and business firms, thereby creating an additional drag on spending and growth. The widely observed correlations between economic activity and measures of bank credit lend support to this theory. But causation can flow in the opposite direction as well. When overall economic activity seems poised to contract, the outlook for household income and business revenues deteriorates as well, and such borrowers become less creditworthy, all else constant. My reading of the history of U.S. business cycles is that the direct effect of credit markets on real economic activity, the so-called credit channel, accounts for only a small part of the variation in output over the typical cycle. And my reading of current conditions is that bank lending is constrained more now by the supply of creditworthy borrowers than by the supply of bank capital. As I said earlier, the critical policy challenge for our time is to reestablish the boundaries of central bank lending and public sector support. In doing so, the prime directive should be that the extent of regulatory and supervisory oversight should be commensurate with the extent of access to central bank credit in order to effectively contain moral hazard. The dramatic recent expansion of Federal Reserve lending and government support more broadly has extended public sector support beyond existing supervisory reach and thus could destabilize the financial system, system absent corrective action. Restoring consistency between the scope of government support and the scope of government supervision is essential to a healthy and well-functioning, sustainable financial system. One option is simply to adapt our financial our, our regulatory and supervisory regime to the new wider implied reach of government lending support. This strikes me as an unattractive option, if for no other reason than the current uncertainty about the outer bounds of that support. Constraining moral hazard in such a regime would be an immense and daunting task. I take it as given, therefore, that the scope of the financial safety net ultimately must be rolled back. The question there be then becomes where to establish uh, the boundaries of a combined safety net and supervisory regime. The appropriate answer to that question depends in turn on fundamental questions surrounding the functioning of financial markets. As my remarks suggest, my reading of the research on financial arrangements has left me generally skeptical regarding conjectures of broad financial market dysfunction. This is not because I'm particularly sanguine about the inherent stability of less constrained financial markets, but because it seems reasonable to expect a measure of instability even in well-functioning credit markets. Accordingly, I would favor a narrower rather than a broader public sector support for the financial system. However, the critical scope question is answered. A crucial constraint on the new regime is that it be time consistent. That is, a commitment not to provide support beyond the new policy boundaries needs to be credible. My former colleague, Marvin Goodfriend, and I wrote about this problem 10 years ago. We noted that central banks' implied responsibility for financial stability, quote, can create pressure to expand the scope of central bank lending to non-bank financial institutions. We predicted a tendency for central banks to overextend lending and an increase in the rate of financial distress over time as market participants come to understand the range of the central bank's actual implicit commitment to lend. Professor Goodfriend and I considered several methods 
by which the central bank might credibly commit to limit lending, and we concluded that there were no effective substitutes for building a reputation for doing so. We noted that the experience by which central banks around the world built reputations for maintaining low inflation provided a roadmap of sorts for how to credibly limit lending. Essential to that process is for the central bank to at times disappoint expectations and refuse to lend, even at the cost of short-run financial market disruption. To conclude, I think perhaps the central lesson of recent events is that establishing new safety net boundaries that are credible and sustainable in this sense will be a very difficult task. But finding a way of establishing credible boundaries is essential if we wish to maintain a financial system that includes both institutions that are protected and regulated by the public sector and institutions that are regulated primarily through market discipline. I believe this mix is important to achieving a balance between the safety that comes from government involvement and the innovation that, despite the associated volatility, has added so much to the effectiveness of our financial system and to overall growth. Thank you very much. Jeff has expressed a willingness to respond to several questions, but let me ask one first. Uh, was the Open Market Committee or any other group within the Fed asked to review and authorize these new forms of federal lending, uh, Fed lending, to different targets, to non-financial, inst to non-depository institutions, to non-financial institutions? <clears throat> well, um, the, the answer is in the public record. Um, Section 13.3 um, uh, the, the provision of the Federal Reserve Act that um, allows uh, reserve banks to lend to individuals, partnerships, and corporations requires approval by the Board of Governors. Um, so in those instances in which 13.3 was invoked to lend beyond banking institutions, uh, it was a decision of the individual reserve bank and the Board of Governors. And so it, it was a decision that did not involve the Federal Open Market Committee, which is a separate structure. And they did review and approve, authorize the actions. They did. This is a matter of public record. Yeah. Okay. Good. <clears throat> yes. Here. Uh, two points. Uh, Joe, similar to what you said, uh, first of all, I would like your opinion on the reason for banks returning their own capital uh, to perform all the trends prior to the Social It effectively sterilizes that capital for use in a, by a bank at a time when it needs to use that capital most. Um, so on the first question, the use of um, quantitative models in capital setting, um, uh, they have to be used very, very carefully. And it's our job as supervisors to make sure that they're used carefully enough. 
um, obviously, um, you know, the prescription that um, a model is only as good and only as robust, and that's the key thing as, um, you know, the, the, the assumptions that go in, into it is, is an apt one. And so, um, you know, the use of models requires serious adult supervision. Um, Do you believe that regulators are paid enough that they can outsmart the people who are on the other side who desire to, de- who desire to deceive them? Um, I'm not going compens- <laughs> to I'm not going to comment on regulators' compensation uh, schedules. Um, there's a conflict of interest there in doing so, obviously. Um, I think that uh, we have the capability. I think we've been able to attract the talent. Um, in our our uh, district, for example, uh, we have two. Um, we have some large institutions in Charlotte. Uh, Twenty years ago, the largest institution in our district was twenty fourth in the country. Now we have, or until recently, we had two of the top ten, uh, two of the top five actually. Um, we've been able to attract. Um, talented people, but it's, it's always a struggle. I think every regulator will tell you that they could, um, you know, that it's something they have to work out con- at continually uh, to succeed at. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I'm, com- I'm comfortable that we at the Federal Reserve will find the resources to do it. Oh, the second question? All right, so I skipped from the first to the third. Second question was about stigma. Stigma is the phenomenon that some action that an entity takes will cause counterparties to revise their assessment of that entity. That most economists think that more information is better. So the phenomenon of whether stigma should be avoided or not or whether it's a bad thing or not is not obvious at all. I mean, revealing information allows institutions to sort themselves so that the good ones are rewarded for being better and the ones that aren't so good are punished or penalized for, for being not so good. So I, it's not obvious to me that stigma is something that we, we need to shy away from. So. Hi. Um, you mentioned that before the creation of the Federal Reserve, uh, during economic downturns, there was a spike in the interest rate. Um, now, when that happens, um, only the most solvent institutions can survive, Right. And when the, the Federal Reserve comes in to supply money uh, during those times, it allows marginal um, institutions to survive the downturn, um, leading to misallocation of capital and instability. Um, if, you agree, if you disagree with that, please tell me why. And if you agree in any way, then do you think uh, having a... Uh, central banking system is valid today. I'm in favor of central banking today. <laughs> I'll go on the record with that. Um, so the relative solvency of institutions seems likely to be reflected in the risk premium they pay in financial markets. And I think that was true back then as, as it is now. And their ability to access um, uh, capital from counterparties. Um, for us to alter the risk-free price of money in the short run does nothing necessarily to the 
spectrum of risk premia paid by alternative institutions. So for, to my mind, it, it doesn't need to do anything to the relative um, uh, viability of institutions. Um, it may alter sort of the aggregate um, incidence of distress um, by changing real economic conditions and growth. But um, um, but that's just a byproduct of it, it's, of it achieving its monetary policy aims. Yeah, um, I guess first a, a comment, uh, your comment about uh, for investors being uncertain due to government intervention from someone who, who invests day-to-day, uh, -day, that's definitely a big source of uncertainty in any decision made in portfolio management is what's, what's going to come next from the government. Uh, on your comments regarding central bank credibility not to not to lend to a large scope of institutions, how much do you think all of the lending and uh, new Fed programs over the past year or so has has uh, you know, damage that potential credibility, and how how long will it take for the Fed to get that back, where people don't think next crisis that everyone will just get bailed out? It's a really good question. I mean, there's no, I I don't think there's any doubt that a year and a half ago, um, most people put a, an extreme would have put an extremely low probability on the policy interventions and initiatives we've seen. Um, so to that extent, I think we've set precedent that no one expected us to set. And it just seems um, highly likely that we've altered expectations about how we are likely to behave in future circumstances that resemble this one. Now, the important thing to note about that is that it means that it will not be sufficient to when the recovery comes, um, scale back our lending. That's something that's necessary, but that will not be sufficient because the, the lingering, unless we do something about it, the lingering expectation will be that when the next crisis comes, a similar response will be forthcoming. And that's the, and, and in scaling back that expectation that I think is the challenge of our time as, uh, as regulators. Quick question on the um, decision to pay interest on reserves. Mm -hmm. um, who actually first who who sets the actual interest that's paid on reserves? Is the board open, of governors? The board of governors does not the open market committee. No, but um, but so remember we have a precedent for this because there's discount rates that all the reserve banks set subject to the approval of the board of governors in a process that's entirely separate from the setting of the federal funds target rate. And yet we managed to get them to be a fixed thing apart. So <laughs> we're able to – we all know each other. And so we're able to communicate and uh, make sure that they're uh, consistent with each other. But as a formal legal matter, it's the Board of Governors that sets that interest rate. Um, I, that actually is an interesting – maybe raises an interesting governance question. But the, I guess the also what, what is the policy rate though then if you have the interest on – if you're paying interest on reserves and you also have a – target rate, is it going to now evolve to something like in the ECB where there's going to be this corridor of interest rates uh, as opposed to? Well, the answer is it depends. And what it depends on is simple. I mean, it's not that complicated. It depends on the supply 
of reserves. So in a corridor system where you have a, a discount rate with the, that determines the, the borrowing rate that determines the upper end of the corridor and the interest rate on bank de- central bank deposits, which determines the bottom, if you constrain supply of reserves, you get something in the middle. And if you want the target to be above the floor, you have to constrain supply. On the other hand, the demand curve is going to hit an asymptote at the floor, at the interest rate on reserves, in theory. And so if you add enough reserves, you'll drive the interest rate down to the floor, whatever it is. Now, in theory, that's what should be happening now. One last question in the back. (laughs) Your discussion highlighted the uh, problem of not just uh, extended government policy intervention, but inconsistent uh, policy intervention. And uh, in mid-September, there was a decision made not to um, save laymen, effectively, uh, not to have a policy in that particular instance, whereas in other instances, there were government interventions. Since then, it has been widely noted that, uh, or widely claimed, that the Lehman failure triggered a broader uh, evolution of the crisis, uh, and it led to sort of an extension of some systemic effects. Um, I was wondering, what is your view on this conundrum? Do you view that the Lehman failure or the failure of someone like Lehman was an inevitability, and then this issue of not saving Lehman led to the broader systemic effects as sort of a red herring, or what is your what should have been the approach in this type of instance? Um, I'm not going to second-guess the decisions that have been made. Um, I will note that, um, you know, I, I have confidence that the policymakers made uh, the best judgment given the information at the time and the forces affecting, the factors affecting their decisions. What it led to was a decision, a situation the day after AIG where it was really hard to communicate in very simple, plain terms what it was that determined which of these events were determined, were handled uh, which way. Um, and, um, you know, that left... That posed problems for financial market participants that I think all policymakers appreciated very deeply. And um, I think that's what motivated – that's my interpretation of what motivated um, – and I, you know, I'm not speaking for the principles here, but that, that's what in a sense you can view as what motivated the pursuit of a comprehensive solution uh, that week. Let's uh, wrap it up now so the rest of the next group can get organized and thank Jeff.